The special session starts now. Bring it. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at QuorumReport.com, and Jeremy Wallace at the Houston Chronicle and HoustonChronicle.com is up and raring to go this week, aren't you? Yeah, everything's special. You know, with a special session, we're all special, aren't we? Well, I try to tell all these folks. Every session is special. Let's get real. The Yes, right. Um, We will cover uh, the lieutenant governor's office uh, and their uh, love letter to the quorum report. That's coming up. Um, But first, let's get to what impacts everybody, which is the list that was released today by Governor Abbott of which topics the legislature will address over the next 30 days. Remember when the governor said that Lieutenant Governor Patrick's suggestion for an immediate special session was goofy? You recall that during a news conference in Dallas-Fort Worth? He told Julie Fine at NBC5 up there, one of the great reporters in DFW, that not only was the suggestion goofy, but that Abbott was going to sort of go slow. Uh, when it came to the agenda for the special session, he said he would do one topic at a time. And until the legislature approved the, you know, a bill on the topic he was talking about, that he wouldn't move to the next topic until they got that done. It's not what he's doing at all. He's doing something very different. In fact, he's doing basically what he did in 2017 when he called his only other special session. It's easy to think that special sessions happen all the time. But they don't. That's why they call them special. Um, In 17, that was Abbott's only special so far. And we're going into the next one. And he's, you know, structurally, he's doing this sort of the same. Remember, in uh, 2017, there were 20 items placed on the call. Um, And it was actually 21 items, if you include the sunset legislation, which was the source of the leverage for the lieutenant governor to be able to move forward with things like the bathroom bill, which ultimately failed. But there were other things on there, too, like uh, tree pruning ordinances. Yep. And micromanaging what cities and counties can do and stuff like that. Well, this time around, um, what do we have? We have elections legislation. We have um, some more legislation supporting police and a few other things, right? The border wall or border security is included in this. Anything stand out to you, Jeremy? Yeah, the, the fact that we're going to go back through another transgender children war uh, seems a little it's surprising to me. I, I didn't expect mm-hmm. that to come back up so quickly. Uh, so there's a bill, you know, he wants a bill on preventing uh, transgender uh, girls from being able to play in girls' scholastic sports in Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another, uh, you know, bill, he wants more on critical race theory. Uh, what yeah. specifically is kind of unclear, but it's clearly the topic du jour on Fox News every day. <laughs> yes. So they it certainly it kind of fits that, you know, box perfectly. Uh, so there's a lot of, you know, it's hard not to call it a red meat, you know, mm-hmm. you know, party going on. Uh, it, I, I tweeted out earlier that this looks like the CPAC conference just moved to Austin because mm-hmm. um, right. that's what it kind of feels like. Everything that's on a, that agenda at CPAC in Dallas this weekend uh, mm-hmm. where they're meeting with President Trump, all that is going to be basically part of this agenda for the special session. So it feels like we're all sort of locked in the Trump show. And, of course, that makes the fundamental issue elections. Uh, Let me mention one issue that's not on there, uh, which would be electricity. Correct. You remember Lieutenant Governor Patrick was very fired up about that. He submitted an op-ed to the Dallas Morning News last week arguing that Texas needs more electricity. Plain and simple. Uh, Governor Abbott took some executive action, imagine that, uh, this week on that, uh, directing the Public Utility Commission to address uh, what's going on with the electricity market in Texas. That's after Abbott had said 
that everything that needed to be done on the grid was done during the regular session. Keep that in mind, dear listener, as we go through this long, hot summer. And if we hit, you know, if we hit any bumps in the road, if there are any uh, blackouts across the state, anything like that, there could definitely be more legislative action on it because it, it's not necessarily the case that just because a 30-day session is happening now that that's the only special session that's going to happen. We could have more of these, right? Yeah, and um, very important to remember that you know the governor you know can call as many special sessions as he wants. You know he could right. you know remember Rick Perry had 12 special sessions during his time mm-hmm. as governor, uh, and there have been times. There's one year we had Bill Clement had the legislature in special sessions for 152 days, mm-hmm. uh, so they can just keep bringing them back you know whether they mm-hmm. pass anything or not so yeah we could be in for a really long stretch anytime abbott wants to add stuff he can just call them all back up here i believe when governor clements uh, had that going on it was uh, the issue of workers comp that they couldn't work it out it was like six or seven special sessions uh, and uh, some of the old timers in austin have said that it was a really great time to be observing the process because every time you start the special session you have to start everything over. The yep. bills have to be filed. The hearings have to happen again. The floor debates have to play out. And for that uh, for that stretch, it was like Groundhog Day. Some of this will probably seem the same, right? Because these are issues that they talked about before. So let's go straight to elections. Why are we even talking about this? Elections in Texas were safe, smooth, and secure, according to the Republican Secretary of State. I should say former Secretary of State. Um, yes. Ruth Hughes moved on after the Senate de- declined to uh, confirm her. Um, but other Republicans have, does, you know, have said the same. So why are we doing this? Jeremy, I've been, th- I've been trying to uh, figure this out, racking my brain. As this debate has played out for the last seven months now, at least in, in Texas, can you think of what is the one thing that was in Senate Bill 7, the elections bill, the big omnibus bill that was killed by the Democrats? Can you spot can you uh pinpoint the one thing that's in that bill that any of the state leadership has said is the thing that needs to be done yeah not the not one cohesive thing there, there, right. there's yeah there's a lot of smattering stuff, right? of mm-hmm. you know about things like vote harvesting and yep. you know making sure our absentee ballots are secure but not not mm-hmm. anything one specific i don't think right there, there's no sort of one shot one kill thing that's happening here now one of the things that was added to that bill late in the regular session it's very controversial and i think very offensive even to republicans was the um, provision that would allow judges to more easily overturn election results, basically with yep. no evidence of fraud. Um, why was that provision put in there? How did that happen? Um, this will take us in a moment to the love letter to the quorum report. Uh, State Representative Julie Johnson and State Representative John Busey, both Democrats, one from Dallas and one from Williamson County, they were on MSNBC last night with Lawrence O'Donnell, on his show, The Last Word. And Johnson said it's pretty simple, that Dan Patrick and the Texas Senate put that language in the bill and now they're trying to deny it. Well, we know exactly who put that provision in the bill and that are the Republicans in the Senate. And they put that provision in the bill and sent it over to us in the House. And so, and they did it, unfortunately, with about 11 hours left of the legislative uh, session. Uh, so they slid it in at the last minute. We didn't get the bill until 4.52 on Sunday when the clock expired at midnight. And that provision mysteriously appears. So, yeah, they knew exactly what they were doing. They were trying to get Democrats asleep at the wheel. But 
Fortunately, we were paying very close attention and we didn't let it happen. You remember, Jeremy, because you were there for hours and hours in the Texas Senate. I mean, did they go on for six, seven, eight hours overnight uh, when they debated the final version, the conference committee report on SB7? It included these provisions at that time, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, from from about 10 p.m., mm-hmm. you know, cleared till about 6 a.m. That's all we okay. talked about were these provisions. And Senator Brian Hughes, who is the author in the Senate, defended those positions on the floor. Am I right? Absolutely. Right. So it's not like they didn't know it was there and and not as if they didn't mount a vigorous defense, not only to the provision about overturning elections, but also the thing that some Republicans later called a typo, which is cracking down on the souls to the polls uh, events that uh, happened in the African-American community, allowing for voting on Sundays. Uh, They were going to do it at one o'clock instead of 11 in the morning. Right. Yeah, I mean, they they defended that for hours. Yes, it's not that, in there question. was a lot of attention. It's like you know, and I believe one of the the Royce West, the uh, senator from Dallas, made mm-hmm. a really lengthy you know exchange with you know Brian Hughes on this issue. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely a lot on the record of them going back and forth, specifically on the reduction of voting times on Sundays. Representative John Busey was asked why Republicans are now abandoning that language altogether. You know, they they run policy through us and they try to run us over all the time. They thought they would do that again here. We made it so clear to them what they were doing. And now that the press and everybody's covering this and they realize how bad this policy is, uh, they're trying to walk it back and try not to own it. So I think it just shows that our walkout and breaking quorum is paying dividends already and making a real impact for the people of Texas. Now, remember when Lieutenant Governor Patrick had said that the media didn't know what was in the bill because we had not read it and that folks in corporate America who were against the bill had not read it either, uh, particularly American Airlines. He was very upset with American because they had come out and said they were against Senate Bill 7. Some of the provisions that were in there at the time, this is before the final version, included cutting down on the number of polling places in uh, areas that are heavily populated by minorities and others. Uh, Patrick said that to be against the bill was to suggest that he is a racist. Let me go back to a news conference where he said all this. And this is not just me saying this. There were a lot of folks uh, who watched him at that news conference, and you were there, I think, Jeremy, Yes. um, in the room, when Patrick was screaming. I'm not exaggerating because I'm going to play it for you here. Uh, He was screaming about how he's being accused of being a racist and he's not going to stand for it. American Airlines had the audacity to call our office and speak to my chief of staff last week and say, we just want you to know that this is not personal against the lieutenant governor or the governor, but we're going to come out and oppose the bill, Senate Bill 7. My chief of staff said, well, have you read the bill? And the government relations person said, no, no, I haven't read the bill. How about the CEO of American Airlines? Has he read the bill? Nope, he hasn't read the bill. So you're calling us to tell us this isn't personal against Lieutenant Governor or the governor or the 18 members who voted for the bill, but you haven't read the bill? Then you're calling us out for suppressing the vote? Well, let me tell you what, Mr. American Airlines, I take it personally. You're questioning my integrity and the integrity of the governor and the integrity of the 18 Republicans voted for this. When you suggest that we're trying to suppress the vote, you are, in essence, between the lines, calling us racist, and that will not stand. 
you know, if the legislation would hurt minority voters and their voting rights, that's maybe a little more important than whether Dan Patrick's feelings are hurt. That would be one observation about it. In that same news conference, Patrick also argued that ever since voter ID was passed back in 2011, a decade ago, voter turnout has gone up and ballot security in Texas has been very well maintained. Look up the numbers, media. Do your homework. I haven't seen this story told anywhere. Texas has had one of the biggest increases in voter turnout, voter participation of any state in the country, all under Republican leadership. I listened to that press conference in Houston yesterday, and one of the speakers commented, this has all been under Republican leadership. I'm proud of what we have done as Republicans when it comes to voting. We have secured the vote and increased the turnout. So then why is any of this needed? If you have more people voting and elections are totally secure, what do we need a bill passed about this for? The bill is needed because Americans no longer trust the system. And a country where voters do not trust the system is a country in peril, particularly when you're a republic, when you're a democracy. Now, why would people doubt the system, Jeremy? I am scratching my head, thinking about what could have been going on for months and months now that there would be millions of Americans who would think that the election is rigged. Why would that be? Yeah, I can't even imagine. We're, we're, any guess? What, what? <laughs> any, any idea, even though there's no evidence of that whatsoever, um, it, no one has shown, and, by the, and there have been legal challenges on this. They've all been poured out in court. Um, th there must be somebody who has been running around calling the integrity of the elections into question. This may be the most important speech I've ever made. President Trump tonight releasing this bizarre 46-minute-long speech. But I went from leading by a lot to losing by a little. Filled with more baseless accusations of election fraud. We have in all swing states major infractions or outright fraud. If we are right about the fraud, Joe Biden can't be president. So Trump has been saying that for half a year. Yeah. Right, more than that. Uh, ever since November, um, and now we're in July of 2021. The, the former president, who appeared with Governor Abbott on the border just last week, as we talked about, uh, to talk about the priority of border security, which is going to be part of this special legislative session. Um, the real news this week from Patrick, because he's been you know screaming that uh, you know we need to read the bill. I would ask whether he had read the bill now that he's saying that he had nothing to do with what was on the floor while you listened to them debate it for hours and hours. Um, the uh, lieutenant governor's retiring senior advisor, Sherry Sylvester, penned an open letter to the quorum report after our publisher last week had called into question. And I think based on all the things that we're saying here, I'm paraphrasing Mr. Kromberg, you can read it at quorumreport.com. Harvey had argued that Patrick just in the legislative process is not an honest broker, that at least the speaker who folks might not agree with his position on elections, but at least he's been honest about what the House intends to do with this stuff. But the Senate has been sketchy and they've been using tricks to try to get some of these different pieces of, uh, of language into this uh, bill. And the, uh, the letter, I'll just read the beginning from Sylvester. She says, quote, no one, including me, expects accuracy from the quorum report anymore. It's just a daily rehash of lobbyist gossip, but it was heartening last week 
to see Harvey Kronberg's byline on a piece, a rarity these days. But then I saw that he had written a screed on the election security bill, Senate Bill 7, which is so inaccurate, even by quorum report standards, that there must be a rebuttal. Um, we will have a rebuttal to our letter at quorumreport.com uh, later today, so stay tuned for that. Um, the fact is that Patrick, by sending Sylvester out to say that, and then Patrick tweeting later in the day after that letter was released, that the elections overturning provision and the souls to the polls provision, Patrick said those will not come up in the special session. So personal attacks against us aside, the news out of it, Jeremy, is that Republicans are now completely done with those provisions, right? Yeah. It is not going to happen in some ways, again, to the news of what's happening. That should make this issue in the special session a little bit easier. If the House and Senate are basically in agreement, then the only question is, do the Democrats stay in Austin uh, while this thing gets passed? Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, everything about the special session now is like how, you know, it's like whatever the Republicans throw out, it's just what the Democratic response is going to be. It's like, you know, can the Democrats take it as a victory that they've been able to get souls to the polls out, you know, or uh, mm -hmm. those provisions out of the bill and can, you know, getting rid of the easier to overturn elections. Those are victories the Democrats could take back to, you know, their voters and say, look, you know, we succeeded. You know, by walking mm -hmm. out, look what we able to get out of this bill. Now, of course, a special session, who knows what these bills are going to look like in the end. Let's, you know, although Governor Abbott has lined out what he wants them to talk about, the specifics mm -hmm. of what will be in this elections bill, like we've learned through this regular session that you got to watch this the whole time because we never know in the process when somebody's going to slip something in. And, mm -hmm. and it goes to exactly what, you know, you know, Patrick and the House have been arguing about is like what got put into the bill at what stage, at what time of the dead of night. You know, the fact that this, this is a debate uh, shows you how closed off this process is and mm -hmm. how little they share with the public exactly what they want, you know, in these bills. So, the, mm -hmm. you know, the, this legislation is going to be. You know, who knows what it's going to look like in the end. But Patrick, at least saying kind of what Brian Hughes, the state senator, uh, who's been kind of shepherding you know, Senate Bill 7 through previously, like he's been saying he did not want to see that souls of the polls provision back into the legislation. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and he made it sound like he wasn't really owning that, despite, as we mentioned, he defended that, you know, on the Senate floor. Uh, so, anyhow, there's a lot of signs that the Democrats have succeeded on this portion of it mm -hmm. is that enough for them you know or you know hey the last time they did a walkout they got a lot of national publicity over it mm -hmm. there's a temptation to want to repeat that i'm sure there are going to be members who want to like let's walk out of this thing again and see what happens uh which would then pr produce another special session mm -hmm. but uh anyway so th the question now is going to be going forward over the next two or three weeks how do the Democrats respond? Do they show up or do we end up with one of those like searching for Democrats somewhere in Oklahoma type situations? <laughs> yeah. And the other thing that we should say, yeah, exactly. And the other thing we should say that's going on in the background of all this is yet another ruling um, uh, taking just a, taking a sledgehammer to the uh, Voting Rights Act from the U.S. Supreme Court in the past week. It continues to make the legal challenges to any of these elections laws changes. Uh, it makes those very difficult. Yeah. Right. Sure. I mean, th th there's a very narrow window anymore uh, for any of those legal challenges to be 
uh, to be successful. So the Democrats do have some leverage to make that. And look, the legislative process, people don't understand if if um, if you're not there for it all the time, like, like we have to be. We're there, so you don't have to be. If you're not there, you don't understand it can get pretty miserable. It, and, and that has a toll on Republicans, too. If they have to be there all through the summer yep. and then all through the fall to talk about redistricting and the Democrats keep threatening to leave or they do leave at certain points to delay all this, it gives Democrats leverage to make the bill better. Maybe not something that they would vote for in the end, but something that they would not leave Austin to try to stop. Right? And that you have to, There has to be a proportional response from the Democrats, I guess is what I'm trying to say. They can, they can make their arguments uh, you know, strenuously. They can vote no on the bill because they're representing their communities because they don't agree with this. But that's a different thing from denying the ability of the Republican leadership to move forward with it. And look, if they can get the bill, look, think about the way it played out during the regular session in the House. They had leverage in the legislative process. They went to war on that bill. And in the middle of the night, they were able to amend it to make it, in their estimation, a lot better. They didn't stop it at that point in the legislative session, uh, but they were doing what I would call real legislating. They don't send you there just to protest. Yep, exactly. you know, you're there You're there to represent your communities. And it's a very, um, I don't know why this is such a nuanced thing, but I guess it is, again, for folks who just aren't in the mix all the time and watching all the sausage gets made, how it gets made. Nobody wants that. We watch it for you. It's, it's, a, it's responsible, and I would say an adult approach to legislating, that you would work to improve a bill that you still vote for on, on the final passage. Right, because you don't get everything that you want, but you get some of the things that you want. Um, what's driving all this? Um, Patrick isn't getting what he wants on electricity. I mean, he was strenuously arguing for that, and the governor is saying no. Um, what are some of the other issues that are being driven clearly by the ongoing Republican primary, which is already unfolding right, as we're talking about a special session? Well, we did have one more announcement of a uh, candidate for governor this weekend. Uh, Alan West. Did, did this surprise you, Jeremy? Alan West is running for governor. It did not surprise me. It did surprise yeah. me that he would make the announcement on the 4th of July at a church service mm-hmm. um, that nobody really would have been in a position to cover. <laughs> it, yeah, seems a little over the top. Um, Alan West released a video um, as part of his campaign kickoff on Sunday, on July 4th. Um, and in the video, he makes the argument strenuously that it's okay to not be from Texas. He's yeah. not from Texas, right? He, he taught, he compared himself to, and this goes to something we're going to talk about here in a little bit about the defenders at the Alamo. He compared himself to those uh, folks who died at the Alamo, uh, people who came from Georgia and Tennessee. He's originally from Georgia. I think he went to the university of Tennessee. Uh, he talked about the Tennessee volunteers uh, and all of that. Um, and the issues that he's stressing include, Border security, overreach by the governor, uh, which, of course, Chairman West talked about the entire time that he's been chairman of the Republican Party of Texas. He will be replaced. Uh, they're, they're on schedule, scheduled to do that uh, coming up this weekend. Uh, State Republican Executive Committee is going to pick a new chairman of the uh, Republican Party. So West is still technically chairman for right now. Uh, and some I saw some local Republican chairman saying that uh, he ought to he ought to leave right now, that they ought to force him out. I don't probably going to be a moot point because he's only in there for a few more days. Um, But I saw an interview on Newsmax because it's one of my favorite channels. Uh, Newsmax, uh, Chris Salcedo is the news anchor. I'm putting news in quotes. He was interviewing West about his priorities. What kind of things would he focus on 
if he was elected chief executive officer of Texas. Texas has uh, other obstacles as well. Reliable power generation, property taxes through the roof, taxpayer-funded lobbying, and unaccountable government-run schools. Huge issues in the state of Texas. How are you going to address those things specifically? Well, let's talk about property taxes, and it is unconscionable to me that here in the state of Texas, we have a system of taxation that is really based upon Karl Marx's communist planks and the communist manifesto. Number one, it's a progressive income tax, and it's a tax that is against your property, and Karl Marx talked about the elimination of private property, and that's exactly what you have here in Texas, and that you can never truthfully own your home as long as taxation is uh, levied against your property. The property tax system in Texas being compared to Karl Marx, I think, is a little, it's a bit of a stretch. Um, you know, and I have heard Democrats, and I'm being very generous with that, um, uh, Democrats and Republicans in this state complain about their property taxes, right? There is no tax system that is perfect um, by any means. And whenever you have an argument about taxes, it always comes down to this question what's fair? Which yeah. is subjective, right? Uh, in Texas, one of the ways that we attract so many people here is unlike most other states, we don't have an income tax. People like that. But guess what? They get it somewhere. And in Texas, it, it comes from property owners mainly. Um, if Colonel West doesn't like the tax system that we have, he could put forth an idea for how to reconcile um, a couple of things. One, people are very unhappy about their taxes. But two, the Texas Constitution which I'm, I hope that he's familiar with, even as a new Texan, requires, and this is my redneck version of it, that every kid in this state, no matter who their daddy is, no matter where they grow up, every kid gets an equal and equitable education, right? Whether you grow up in Highland Park in Dallas or in the Colonias in East El Paso County, you're supposed to get an equal education, right? Yep. The, the problem with that, the challenge with that, and this is one of those things that is aspirational. It's in the founding document because it is what the, you know, the people who set up this state originally thought should happen um, and something to work toward. They believe that um, a, and this, again, I'm paraphrasing, but an equal diffusion of knowledge is a good thing for freedom, right? It's a freedom and liberty thing to have an equitable education. Not only rich kids should have a fair shot, that's why it's in the document, right? But how do you pay for that? They don't have the same kind of resources, and you pointed this out many times, Jeremy, in little parts of rural Texas, they don't have the same resources they have in Highland Park or in River Oaks in Houston. Um, so how do you balance that out? Is Governor Abbott gonna be talking about property tax relief? Well, probably he'll have some version of that, and of course they can point to some of the things that they did before. But Wes talking about this, I think that you have that uh, as, a, as one of the factors pushing on Abbott. You also have, as I saw you tweeting, uh, Don Huffines, his other announced um, challenger, talking about a border security plan, which Abbott was just talking about, but I guess he has to talk about it more now uh, because he has one of his challengers talking about it. And very interesting to me is not only like you said last week, you have Patrick probably thinking more about general election politics by focusing on electricity and Abbott thinking more about the red meat that you have to push to win a Republican primary. But also interesting is, Abbott seems to be being pushed more by people like Huffines and West than he is by Patrick, which is a big shift from the past. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and and, and you can see that like uh, Abbott, you know, even before uh, announcing the special ascendant, 
special session agenda uh, by trying to embrace Trump as much as he did by going to the border with Trump, getting his endorsement. You could see he was like, you know, trying to protect his right flank because uh, they knew West was coming. You know, you know, his advisors were were, you know, were expecting this uh, and they were you know certainly prepared for it. You know, the thing is, like, so, you know, look at this race, you know, does West or Huffines have a chance of beating Abbott? You know, the polling suggests that, you know, in Abbott's approval ratings within the Republican Party are better than Rick Perry's were at the mm -hmm. point where he was going for his third term. So on one front, you can see Abbott has a lot to be confident about uh, in that regard. But we also know Abbott's never really had a primary opponent, uh, and he's going to be facing a very unconventional candidate in Alan West and even Don Huffines. And so he's going to be facing something he's never seen before. And so we've never seen how Abbott responds you know, when he's under direct file, fire from somebody on the right who's going to be on the ballot. And so that, that can create some unforced errors. You know, and mm -hmm. so the question is, how does he handle that? So it's going to be certainly an interesting six months. You know, if if the primary stays on March 1st mm -hmm. uh, with redistricting and everything else. And that, it could get stays pushed on back. March yeah. 1st, mm -hmm. Let's remember, absentee ballots will be going out in about six months. It's like we don't have much time. So this calendar is going to speed up super fast, super quick. Mm hmm. One other controversy that's going on, did you see that Lieutenant Governor Patrick claimed credit for canceling an event at a history museum about a history, the, 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 a book that's focused on history? I won't say it's a history textbook or anything, but it's a, it's, it's a look at uh, what happened with the Alamo and one of our colleagues at the Houston Chronicle, Chris Tomlinson, is one of the uh, co-authors on this. It's a book called Forget the Alamo. I'm about halfway through this book, and I'm going to ask Chris about this. Uh, he's probably going to join me on the show next week. We're lining that up. Um, it seems like the most controversial thing about the book, in my estimation so far, is the, is the title, that it's called Forget the Alamo. Obviously, people are angry about that. Um, but this book takes a little bit different look at, at the history of it, and there have been many, many books written about the Alamo. Yeah. Right? So this, it's not um, not new that there's that, that people are talking about it. I can tell you that in Republican primary politics – it's one of those third rails that yeah. with <laughs> ask George P. Bush about that. Yeah, exactly. Right? That's what ask I was about Jerry, to say. ask Jerry Patterson, the former land commissioner about that. Um, I remember when Jerry Patterson was still land commissioner and, and this is, this is somebody who is no liberal, but Jerry Patterson is the, they call him the sort of the, the, the grandfather of the, or the father of the modern gun rights movement in Texas. He authored the original concealed carry bill yeah. as a state Senator years ago very well thought of by conservatives, Alex Jones and that crowd sometimes would accuse him of things like wanting to sell the Alamo to Mexico. Yeah. I remember one afternoon <laughs> there was a story going around some, uh, controversy about the Alamo is going to be sold to Mexico. And I called, uh, Jerry Patterson. I said, where's this even coming from? And he says, <laughs> he says, info wars. <laughs> Do I need to say anything else about this? I said, no, sir. I think I know. I think I know what's going on here. Um, well, I, but like I said, I'm about halfway through this book. I'm really enjoying it. I think it's a, it's a thorough look at what's going on. I don't think that the authors fancy themselves as historians. They point to historians who have said that the that the work that they put together is is pretty complete and well done. You know, they're they're quoting people like William Travis, Jim Bowie, and the rest from original letters that they wrote. They're looking at the history of Santa Ana, which all this stuff 
in Texas, I guess it's fair to say, and we're both we're all you know Texas kids around here, grew up in Texas, went to Texas schools, and all that. Um, it, it's it's almost like um, I don't know. It, it's like the, the the story of the birth of Jesus in the Bible. You know, you're not allowed to question it, right? The, at some point, the legend is just fact. Um, they question some things. For example, the story about William Travis drawing the line in the sand. Yep. at the Alamo and saying if you if you will stay here with me I'd like you to he puts his sword down on the down on the ground draws a line and asks the defenders at the Alamo if they will join him and stay in the Alamo to cross that line and be with him and they eventually all cross the line they all stay there well in the book they get into the fact that <laughs> that that there's no evidence to suggest that that really happened yep. and in fact at one point in Texas schools that story was taught and it was challenged and eventually they stopped you know telling it now it's in the movies and stuff but it's not taught to the kids in schools anymore because they can't it's not that it didn't happen but there's no evidence that it actually did if you go to the alamo plaza in san antonio one of the things that is sort of subtle there in front of the old church is there's a if you look down at the ground right in front of the in front of the door there's a brass line like a little bit it looks like a gold line on the ground and there's a plaque nearby that describes that there's this line in the sand that was drawn by travis and that the people needed to cross the line to stay with him well that's literally there on the ground to back up a story that there's not necessarily any evidence for so they're calling some of these things into question in this book well the lieutenant governor said that when the bullock museum was going to have a, a virtual event with tomlinson and his co-authors brian burrow and uh, jason stanford um Patrick said as soon as he found out about this, he, he, he called them up and canceled it in his capacity as a member of the State Preservation Board, which the presiding officers and a few other people serve on that board. I don't even know that he can necessarily do that just by being on the board and just call the staff at the Bullock and say you have to cancel that. Yeah, Maybe he can. That would certainly be what Patrick is claiming would certainly be, I think, an act of intimidation because there was as far as i could tell there was no actual board action on that it's not like the state preservation board took a vote and said you can't have that event and again it was just a virtual event they weren't even doing this in person uh chris tomlinson of the houston chronicle and co-author on this he was on msnbc and was asked about the book and why it's been so controversial and met with so much harsh criticism including this rebuke by the lieutenant governor well we make the argument that the myths that were taught to people my age and younger, frankly, in Texas schools are hurtful to the growing uh, plurality of Hispanics in Texas. Uh, it paints a picture of freedom-loving Anglos fighting against dark-skinned people for liberty. Uh, it completely ignores the role that slavery played in motivating this. Uh, because we point out the inconvenient fact that uh, Mexico, as a multicultural uh, society that had just overthrown Spanish colonial rule, was trying to outlaw slavery. Uh, the President Santa Ana said before he crossed the border into Texas, I am going to go free the wretched souls held in bondage in Texas. And uh, to say those things in Texas is apparently... Um, was going to get you slapped down. These uh, controversies over race 
are, are really taking uh, center stage. It, you know, we talked about the fact that during the special session, you're going to see some sort of legislation debated once again about critical race theory, which started out as a very obscure thing that you know only a few people. Have, I think a year ago, no one would have even known what you were talking about yeah, if you brought correct. up critical race theory. Yeah. And like you said, now they bring it up five times an hour at least on Fox News Channel, maybe on average. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're talking about it a lot on their morning shows and on the evening talk shows and all that. Um, look, it, none of this, though, is anything that was new to me as somebody who has studied Texas history and even from the classes in schools uh, that I remember learning about the fact that you know slavery was a part of all this and there was a debate about whether uh, the revolution was about uh, slavery and then uh, whether, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the civil war itself lay, you know, around surrounding all this in the United States was about slavery or states rights. You had that whole thing going on. Uh, you know, you would, you would have teachers in Texas public schools who would tell you, and Chris is, you know, Thomason's not wrong when you would have, uh, some of our teachers would say, you know, it was not about slavery. Yeah. It was about states rights, right? States rights. Anybody, anytime somebody says states rights, you, you know what they mean. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's, I, I can speak for my. It's not grade. states' rights to, to have their own electric grid. Yeah, my seventh grade class at Hobby Middle School in San Antonio kind of missed the whole slavery discussion. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, you know, from you know the, the from Texas Independence, mm -hmm. you know, clear on through. We certainly did not talk a lot about you know Santa Anna's perspective yeah. on what he mm -hmm. was doing uh, in Texas. Yeah, and I'm not a historian. I don't pretend to be one. I do enjoy these topics, though, and I'm enjoying the book. I think that what they're trying to do, and, and again, we'll visit with Chris next week, uh, what they're trying to do is take a more holistic approach to telling the story and yeah. say, look, these people were complicated people. Um, you know, some of the folks who we think of as the heroes of Texas were also slaveholders and people who had other things that they did that were not good. It's a truism, right, that there are bad people who can do good things and vice versa. Yep. Right. And and so these stories are more complex than people want to make it out like these people were heroes and these people were evil. Uh, but in Texas, when it comes to a discussion of slavery, when it comes to a discussion of racism, um, you know, we have we have some of the highest of high. I've said this before. I'll say it again. We have some of the highest of highs and lowest of lows. Yep. We had we had Sam Houston, who everybody holds up as a hero, who was completely against, you know, joining the Confederacy. I mean, he had said, look. We didn't fight all this time, fight a whole war to try to then be part of the United States to then leave it over this, right? That, that's a high, in my opinion. A low is, did you know this? Of all the constitutions that have ever been written on earth, only one of them explicitly makes slavery legal and, and explicitly outlaws any attempt to get rid of slavery. That was the original Texas Constitution. Nowhere else has that ever happened, right? So we have the lowest of the lows as well. So I think when people talk about this, it's important to think about it in, in a holistic context. We're going to get into this a lot when we talk more about the critical race theory stuff, because I think there's a lot of the, uh, you talk to historians, you talk to some of the people who want to have an open, honest conversation about racism in the United States. They're not saying that everybody's racist. They're saying that we have to have a, a real conversation about how it impacts our politics and public policy and the things that happen, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, whether that's uh, policing, whether that's, you know, equity in, in housing, whether that's equity in education, et cetera. Um, one more thing here. Is Ted Cruz running for president again? It always feels like the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah. It, he's never not running for president. He was on Newsmax. Again, I can't stop watching it, Jeremy. He was on Newsmax 
and he got the 2024 question. Is he running again? Senator, we're out of time, but I have to ask you one more quick question. You ran for president in 20 in 2016. Are you considering a 2024 presidential run? <laughs> well, just sure. considering, I, look, just thinking about the, it. it, it, it I, I am cert, I'm certainly uh, looking at it. I'll tell you, 2016 was the most fun I've ever had in, in, in my life. We came incredibly close. Had an incredible grassroots army, 326,000 volunteers nationwide. And so whether it is in the Senate or whether it is in a presidential campaign, I'm committed to fighting to defend free enterprise, to defend freedom, and to defend the Constitution and Bill of Rights. And right now, the battleground is the U.S. Senate. Right now, the battleground is fighting back on Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and, and the incredible threat they're posing to our liberty. And, and so I'm proud to be leading that fight right now in the U.S. Senate. It sounds to me, Jeremy, like, yeah, you never say no if somebody says you're going to run for something else, which is that's um, that's uh, what a veteran politician does. You, you don't ever close the door on anything. However, you do say a version of this. I have the best job in the world right now. Yeah. Right. And that's that's basically what he's doing. But but man, after after what happened with Cruz, Rubio and some of the others who were competing for the presidency and the GOP nomination against Donald Trump, the way they were not only shredded by him in the Republican primary, which I've heard from a lot of Republicans who are not Cruz fans and not really Trump fans either, but some of those Republicans would say they could never repay Donald Trump for shredding Ted Cruz that way. <laughs> and it, a lot of Republicans in Texas feel that way. Um, it's a complicated relationship, just like at the Alamo. You know, it's this is complicated <laughs> stuff. It's not all cut and dry. Um, but the way that that all went down. Um, Maybe it's wise to just put some distance between all of that. I mean, the guy between that and another run for the presidency, Cruz does have one of the best jobs in the United States. He's a U.S. senator. It's a pretty exclusive club. There's only 100 of them, right? And he can be that probably as long as he wants to be. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting because for the longest time, Republicans had a tendency to rally around whoever finished second in one presidential cycle and carried them over into the next one. You know, think of people like John McCain and Mitt Romney, uh, who had finished runner-ups, uh, but then came back, you know, four years later uh, or eight years later and became, you know, the next guy. Uh, and so Cruz has to be thinking, well, I'm next guy up, right? You know, mm -hmm. so there's, there's, there's a potential of that, except for in today's modern era, you know, what's happened in the Trump world uh, that we now live in, uh, you can bypass all that. <laughs> None of that matters. <laughs> right. It's like who was on Fox most recently? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's like, you know, Tom Cotton uh, becomes a, a top candidate, you know, overnight. Right. Uh, and then he moves on. Then it's Nikki Haley. And then, you know, you know, remember we had, you know, Herman Keynes and, you know, Ben Carson was a mo for a moment was Rick a leading Perry candidate. Rick Perry was going to be president. Yeah. It's like Remember when Rick Perry was going to be president? Absolutely. And so so it, it's certainly a muddier, messier field. And it's not the clean succession. Um, mm -hmm. And obviously people around McCain will say that wasn't such a clean succession either, you know, right. given that, like, he went up and down in the polls so much before mm -hmm. he finally won the nomination and, of course, then lost to Obama. But, yeah. you know, nonetheless, it's like, you know, it, it's not surprising that Cruz would still be wanting to kick the tires on taking another shot at the White House. He came that close. I'm not sure you can get that close and not think, oh, if only <laughs> I can push a little bit further, yeah, maybe right. I can get there.
Maybe I can possibly get there. I just think that, you know, in this generation, we've had a shift uh, where it it was thought that you had to pay your dues before you needed to be a governor for a long time or be a senator for a long time. And it's not on the just on the Republican side either. I mean, President Obama had a meteoric rise. I mean, he was in I'm trying to remember what year 2004. Right. He spoke at the DNC. He was picked by John Kerry to be a keynote speaker there. And that was where he gave the speech about there, you know, not being red states and blue states and, you know, we're all one country and all of that. It was very aspirational, inspirational. And he had just, he went from, he was a state senator, right? At that time? Barely. Barely a state. He had just been elected a state senator. Yeah. And suddenly he's a U.S. senator and suddenly he's running for president. And guess what? He won. So that sort of upset the apple cart. Now people are thinking, well, if he can do it, I can do it. No, believe me, every every one of these guys, whether they're a state rep, a senator, congressman, whatever, they wake up in the morning, they look in the mirror, and they say, "Hello, Mr. President." Yeah. They all do. They they yeah, they, they all it, think it, and yeah, so it and told- so they feel like there's they, well, they feel like there's no barrier to entry like there used to be. Yeah, exactly. And if you if you're getting a moment going, uh, there was a political scientist who's once said, you know, don't you think they're, they're, you know, already testing out their inaugural speeches, <laughs> you know, once they get a taste of that fame, you know, the, the quest for the presidency makes people, you know, do crazy stuff, you know, look at, you know, a guy like Marco Rubio, you know, years ago, again, he was barely, you know, in the state Senate or in the U S Senate before, like all of a sudden he was running for president, you know, right. too soon or, is it right on time? Who knows? Yeah, when you're talk right, when you're talking about it, and you know, maybe even your kids roll their eyes, you should slow down. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a good point. Think, think, yeah. Check check with the people around you if it's a good idea. All right, um, we have a lot of work to do. Jeremy will be on assignment next week, so he'll be back with us the week after that. The special session getting underway. You'll want to check HoustonChronicle.com and QuorumReport.com for up to the minute updates as uh, the situation unfolds. A special session. It doesn't, you know, as we said at the beginning, all these sessions are special, but a special session, it doesn't feel as special when they start because it's not all the pomp and circumstance of the regular session when they have, you know, the grand opening of everything and the families come in. It's almost like the first day of school. Everybody brings their family and they're there on the, you know, the floor of the House and Senate and they give these grandiose speeches about all the stuff they're going to do. In a special session, there's none of that. They'll just come in tomorrow and get to work. So you'll see hearings start, I think, and I had heard this yesterday, um, chairmen in the House and Senate were already telling members of their committees to not make any weekend plans, that they're going to start doing hearings as soon as uh, tomorrow, through the weekend, through next week. I wouldn't be surprised, Jeremy, if by next Wednesday or Thursday, we saw some of these major pieces of legislation on the floor yeah. of the House and Senate. They may move very quickly on this stuff. You want to keep up to date. QuorumReport.com, HoustonChronicle.com, and we will be here with podcast coverage as well next week. Mm-hmm.